Thanks for tuning into the XL Legal Podcast, an interview-based podcast for lawyers devoted to practice excellence and wellness tips. I'm your host, Shelley Appleby-Ostroff, legal talent development consultant, writing coach, and former practicing lawyer, and I'm so happy you're here. Today, I'm honored to be speaking with Jennifer Carana about the impact of the pandemic on administrative tribunals in Canada and counsel appearing before them. Jennifer is Vice Chair of the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal and Chair of the Council of Canadian Administrative Tribunals. Welcome to the XL Legal Podcast, Jennifer. Thanks so much, Shelley. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Well, thanks so much for being here. As we move into, I can't believe it, the second year of the pandemic, (laughs) one of the many things I've been thinking about is how quickly courts and tribunals had to adapt to the new world of virtual proceedings, which I imagine couldn't have been an easy transition. So I'm just wondering, how did administrative tribunals do it? Uh, Well, it's, you know, probably like a lot of things with the pandemic, um, you know, I would say that it it really depends on how the tribunal was equipped to begin with, right? So some, I think, uh, met with the new realities and the new challenges and were able to adapt relatively quickly and almost seamlessly because of the way they'd been set up from the get-go. So I give you as an example, um, one of the tribunals I used to work with, the Social Security Tribunal, which was set up to be an electronic tribunal that was already doing, uh, you know, the vast majority of all its hearings either by telephone or online. So, you know, it was able to keep working almost, you know, without any change and and seamlessly. Others weren't set up that way. And I know had to, as you say, pivot or adapt relatively quickly to to the virtual reality and didn't have the resources and infrastructure to have, you know, either the adjudicators or members work remotely um, or certainly registry staff. So my own tribunal, um, relatively small, we were, certainly able almost from the from day one um, all the members to work from home and to access all of our case files and and same with our registry staff but I know that's not been the case with all and um, some had to move from having paper files into a more electronic world um, and uh, you know and, and have had to deal with I guess the adaptation process as well making sure people were trained up um, and trying to shift the mentality and culture, I think, a little bit in terms of what some people thought was going to be, maybe we all optimistically thought was going to be short-lived mm-hmm. until we could, quote, go back to the way things were. And uh, and I think that's that's shifted and adapted over time as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I imagine you, fortunately, there were some tribunals, like you mentioned, the Social Security Tribunal, mm-hmm. which was already set up to operate remotely. So were, um, sort of, was there a, um, any learning that happened or sharing of information from tribunal to tribunal? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and, and I think uh, even through, you know, you mentioned um, my work with CCAT, the Canadian Council of Administrative Tribunals, it's been really, an, you know, an encouraging and, uh, and welcoming experience to that, to that extent with the pandemic, right? There's been a silver lining, I think, um, with all the challenges that everyone has faced. And that's to see just what a groundswell of sharing and community there has been. Uh, within the judicial sector, the administrative tribunal sector. So indeed, you're right, you know, there's no need to reinvent the wheel to the extent that we know there are many websites and resources and and ways of sharing best practices amongst tribunals. So 
So indeed, a lot of it, you know, started kind of informally, you have people emailing, hey, do you have a, you know, a protocol or a best practice you can send me or what did you guys do to train your members and, and uh, I'll link a lot of tribunals and, and uh, registries, you know, from secretariats all the way up to chairpersons were sharing that way and it's been really encouraging to see that happen throughout the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. there, I mean, well, I was going to say there are relatively few tribunals in Canada, but that, I don't think that's really true. I <laughs> think there are a lot of tribunals. Yeah, there, there are many, <laughs> yeah, as we know, most Canadians, you know, are impacted by administrative tribunals in greater numbers even than the courts. So there are many, many, and, and the, there's such a diversity in, in terms of the scope and breadth and the resources available. Um, but there is a lot of, you know, collective knowledge out there about how to work with um, you know, virtual and remote proceedings. And, and it's really, you know, you pick something up from everybody, right? And, and CCAT has, a, has tried to have a repository of resources available where people could, you know, you, you're trying to decide, well, I'm a small tribunal, I don't have a lot of resources, where do I start? You know, is there a good protocol for witnesses? Or, or is there a checklist that I should run through with our members and with parties and preparing a hearing to make sure that uh, we've checked all the boxes on how we're going to share documents or, you know, call witnesses, et cetera. And, um, and that's been an opportunity to, to learn from each other. Not all were set up that way, but we've all had to adapt to whether, whether we liked it or not. Yeah. And quickly too, which is so impressive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm just wondering in terms of uh, your own tribunal, have mm-hmm. you had to make any changes to the sort of any of your you know processes, proceedings, procedures um, that were unique to your tribunal, or were you able to sort of benefit from some of the general protocols that were out there? Um, well, I mean, I guess a bit of both, right? So some of the changes were sort of the obvious ones, in that all of our hearings and in-person events, like mediations, have been cancelled until few until further notice. So. Um, you know, so initially it was really just a matter of saying, yeah, you're right, we, we did take a look at uh, some of the protocols that the courts were putting out, some that, uh, you know, other tribunals and courts around the world had, had put forth and, and try to work with our own members and our parties and adapt with each case, right? So um, whether it was running virtual mediations or, or dealing with the hearings. Um, so I think that those obvious changes were made. Um, I would say there's been some, you know, some positive changes too, in that it's probably caused uh, some tribunals and courts, I think, to challenge their own assumptions about the way we used to do hearings, right? And and not just the fact that they were all in person, but the way they're scheduled, um, you know, this this idea that well, we work from nine to five or nine, what you know, whatever time frame your tribunal operates, and that you schedule these days and blocks. Um, and I think if the tribu- if the pandemic has taught us anything, it's that, you know, you have to be flexible and there's no one size fits all to meet the needs of the parties. And there's no one size fits all um, in terms of, you know, just a mindset to be um, more accommodating and to understand that, you know, there's a rigidity and sort of assumptions about how this service was supposed to be provided to people. And um, I think it's prompted us to be a little more transparent and honest about what's maybe been new to all of us and doesn't, we don't always get it, get it right perfectly, but, um, <laughs> but that's okay. In person wasn't always perfect either. And I think we forget that sometimes uh, and, and maybe even romanticize how, 
how uh, how in how in, in person hearings went. Right, they they all had their challenges. So maybe it's changed the way we conceive of of that service, whether it's alternative dispute resolution or hearings. And I think that openness of of mind is is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I imagine there are certain aspects that um, would be really beneficial to continue going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure, because it, it, it is really a culture shift, right? It's the idea that, okay, we're here to try to get this done. So let's find a way um, to proactively also provide information to, to unrepresented parties. Certainly at our tribunal, uh, the majority of complainants are, are unrepresented. And, um, you know, it's not enough to just to take, you know, to take existing processes that may not have been that user friendly and, and to graft them onto a Zoom platform or an MS Teams platform if you really want to improve the accessibility and the ease of use of, of our of our systems of justice, then you have to kind of rethink how you're doing it. And it pushes the question of, you know, well, why do we do it this way? Do we have to do it this way? And whose convenience are we doing this for? Is it our own as you know, institutions? Is it for the lawyers who are here or is it for the end users who uh, who we're here to answer questions for? So I think that's that's shifted. I hope the the mentality and the dynamic a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And um, I think when you mentioned that uh, the majority of uh, parties before you are unrepresented, mm-hmm. uh, have there been any particular challenges um, in this new environment in working? You know, or in you know dealing with so many uh, unrepresented parties. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, probably like many aspects of the pandemic and, uh, you know, the the challenges it's brought, it's in some ways highlighted where there were inequities. Um, and, you know, it's it's made some challenging things harder and it's it's brought out, as we know, the, the best and the worst in, in all senses. And um, certainly when it comes to those disparities in, in accessibility, it's it's that's no exception. So it in some ways has highlighted that. And yeah, there have been challenges. Of course, there's there are, um, you know, there are parties who maybe don't have access to a computer, don't uh, don't have access to reliable Wi-Fi, live in a remote area where even if you could, you know, career them a laptop and a computer, um, they wouldn't have the ability to connect, at least not in a way that it will allow the the hearing to proceed. So the way we've managed it is really to, you know, to deal with this on a case-by-case basis and to say, look, we've got to invest our energy in making sure those um, those parties where really there are real challenges get the bulk of our attention so that, you know, in most cases, it's actually works quite well. Um, certainly with mediations, in some ways, it's it's made it easier for, for parties to just, you know, free of charge, log into whatever platform and and jump onto a, a mediation and hopefully get things resolved at, at little cost and eliminating the need for time off work and travel and parking and all the rest. Um, but, uh, you know, in those cases where there is really a challenge with access, we've had to find solutions. So as an example, in you know, in one case, um, you know, an individual, like I said, didn't have access to a computer or Wi-Fi. So we worked with, uh, with this person to find a location um, and a service where you know he could walk in and and access uh, a system and sit down and be able to use it and log in to the hearing, um, you know, without having to worry about how he was going to set it all up and and how how he would uh, he would set up the the computer access. So there are very real challenges like that, um, and mm-hmm. and I would say some of it has been assisted as well by 
potentially greater levels of collaboration amongst members of the bar and some of the other council on, on, this, on the other sides of it, right? Who've understood that um, this is all part of getting, getting the, the, the case heard and moving forward. Um, and the more they're willing to collaborate and work um, in, a, in a cooperative way with providing joint books of documents or sort of offering up some of their knowledge to those who don't always have that knowledge, it's, it's gone a long way to moving the files forward. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds like another benefit of, mm-hmm. of the transition. Yeah, the cooperation and collaboration. Yeah, that's so nice to hear. Do you ever have uh, hearings over the phone, by the way? Does that ever, is ever something that happens? Um, yes, certainly in other tribunals I've worked, we did. And I mentioned the SST, the majority of hearings were by telephone, in fact. Um, at the, the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, it's, you know, some parties will connect, uh, you know, you might hear submissions or maybe they start on video and they move to the phone. But generally, it's it's been uh, largely by, you know, by video, I would say for some mediations, they uh, they can and they have taken place entirely uh, by telephone, but usually video is is the uh, the primary way. Though I have personally done a number of phone hearings as well. And you're right, you know, we forget sometimes the phone <laughs> the phone can be a really reliable and useful tool, right? And if you don't, there isn't a compelling reason where you need that visual. Um, it it can be a way to to certainly keep that connection, and it's it's obviously easy for people to access compared to other tools. Mm-hmm. And might deal with some of the privacy issues mm-hmm. that come up. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I'm wondering if, um, you know, having had the experience now, of, as, as I said, you know, a good year in, are there any sort of best practice tips um, that you could pass on for lawyers appearing before administrative tribunals generally during uh, during this time? Sure. I mean, some of them, I think, are even ones that, you know, applied pre pre-COVID, I suppose, and, and would continue on. And, and I would say one of the big ones I've already alluded to is to distinguish between, you know, procedural information that you can provide to someone who's a self-rep or someone who may not have the same resources, uh, even in terms of understanding the tech, right, so that the matter can proceed efficiently from legal advice. So just because you're, you know, you're assisting the process, you're providing information, um, you know, to the other parties who may not be at the same at the same stage or level as you, that you know that that isn't at odds with uh, the the obligations that you owe to your own client, and may in fact cut down on actual time and costs and resources in the long run. So I think the idea that you know having someone who's a self rep or maybe self represented or underrepresented participate in a way they feel they're not being left behind is really in everyone's interest. So to the extent that mm-hmm. council can help support that, that's all of our collective responsibility. It's all part and part of us ensuring that the process is fair. Um, and I would say other, you know, other things I've, you know, already mentioned examples of, but just that flexibility, right? That it's not an all or nothing that that can apply to the timing, the format or document exchange witnesses. Sometimes you, you mentioned the telephone, you can have hybrids. Um, and that council can consent to these reasonable requests. Sometimes there's been a lot of flexibility based on time zones and dates because we're all at home in different parts of the country and uh, adjournments or kind of these, these changes that happen because people have had childcare needs and homeschooling and all kinds of other things going on at home. And I would say that flexibility and collaboration that I mentioned earlier, this 
you know, in the expectation that parties work together with the tribunal and each other to enable the hearing to proceed that, um, you know, that's another tip that we know it's in no one's best interest to be difficult and to be obstinate when there's no, no reason to be. And uh, right. that communication early on in the process, I think, has has also helped in, in using language that that will allow everybody to, to participate is, has been great. Um, and, you know, I gave yeah. some concrete examples earlier of things that council can do. And, and we've certainly seen those like just offering up, hey, you know, I'll be the one to try to compile these joint books or here's some tips I can give you on how I've used uh, you know, this document sharing platform in the past, or I'll make it easy to sign minutes of settlement and that kind of thing. So there's, those are examples of things I think council can do to just help get it done. Yeah, exactly. And I think, well, it's from, from what you're saying, it sounds like there's more communication between the parties and the tribunal uh, mm -hmm. than, you know, prior to, uh, to COVID. Uh, and how, how has that affected your, uh, your work? Do you find that that's taking up more time, just the extra communication and the less formal sort of back and forth between, uh, you know, the, the tribunals and the parties? Yeah, I mean, I think probably everyone involved in, in these virtual processes would agree that it's often like anything in life, I guess, it's all in the preparation. So you spend so much time, you're, you're still doing your regular, you know, preparing and, and working through your regular caseload, but now you've just added on that you're trying to anticipate all these small details like, okay, how will we deal with this? And what if, you know, what am I going to do if the connection drops off and who I've got to make sure they all have a contact, you know, somewhere they can someone they can contact at the registry and what will we do about sharing these documents so we've got to find a, a separate breakout room for counsel and one for the witnesses and make sure the link is there for the public so there's all those little details that matter a great deal to the process and to trying to make sure it goes smoothly like I said it's you may forget ones each time you you, you sort of learn something new but I think my colleagues uh have have been experiencing that too that you know they make these these checklists and lists and lessons learned with each hearing and each mediation and each process, you, you pick up something new. Um, but it does take time, you're right, to, to come up with those, you know, agreed ways of proceeding and to try to work it out in advance with the parties. You can't always anticipate every everything and every problem, but you do your best right. to be prepared. For sure, for sure. And I'm wondering if you could sort of describe how this might be a little difficult, what a video hearing looks like in practice for someone who hasn't appeared before uh, a tribunal yet in one of these virtual or remote hearings. Is there any way you could sort of, I don't know, just give a sense of what to expect and how it unfolds? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the what to expect is a good um, one, one of the best ways that we can do that, I think certainly in our tribunal, and I appreciate not everyone has the resources or, or time to do this in all cases where, you know, there's some tribunals that are very high volume and they can't possibly do all this in advance, but we try to, you know, have case management conference calls and prep, you know, do a lot of this prep with the parties in advance. So they know what to expect. But if, yeah, if you were someone logging on, I guess you would expect to see a screen like you would on zoom or teams or any of the other platforms where, you see an adjudicator, uh, you know, on their own, possibly a, a registry officer or some tribunals have like a tech support or someone who's working behind the scenes to help with um, usually document management and witness management. Um, you could expect to get 
you know, all the information or you should get all the information of what you need to do in advance, kind of some best practices about, you know, kind of like what you sent me today about uh, managing <laughs> the podcast. And um, you should also be invited to sort of a test in advance to make sure you feel comfortable the day of the hearing or the mediation so that you or the day you're giving your testimony so you know how things are going to go. And, um, you know, and, and that counsel, it depends on every tribunal, I guess, but, uh, you know, you would see their, you would see their face there, you know, asking you questions in, in the way you might expect in real life, just you're all a bit closer up, right? I think that that's, uh, that can be something for people to get used to as well. They're in, in, uh, in person, there's more physical distance between us. And, um, sometimes it's, it's quite a close up view when you're in, in person, either in, in, in mediations or in hearings to see everybody's uh, everybody up close. But, um, you know, in some ways I would say it, it sort of dials down the emotion. Um, and uh, again, maybe that's not a bad thing, right? I know there's some counsel who lament the fact that they lose the, the physical space for cross-examination and that, you know, that whole dynamic is lost, but in other senses, it can be less, um, maybe less stressful because people are at home and they're in, you know, they don't have that concern about confronting all the other parties and participants in the process in such a, in such a real physical way. Mm -hmm. And do you think that um, some of those uh, differences have helped to uh, settle matters at the mediation stage more quickly, or is it too early to sort of assess if there's made any, there's been any difference there? Yeah, it's 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 also a fascinating question. I, I bet across all of our sectors, we'll we'll have some data further along and to try to compare because there's so many other factors that go into why people are deciding things in a certain way now. And there's other stressors at play in people's lives, you know. And and I will say, working from home, home, you know, we have to be conscious of this as mediators and adjudicators too. Home is not always uh, a safe and happy place for people, right? So that's that can also be something to be aware of. And, and even for counsel, they've got a lot of stressors sometimes just being at home. So, um, so you know, has it helped tip the balance? It may have in some cases. I think, um, you know, anecdotally, at least I can say that in some ways it's kind of an equalizer that you see, you know, everybody at the beginning, especially struggling with the tech and the systems and, you know, sometimes that's reduced a bit, the, a little bit, the power imbalance, because, you know, judges, adjudicators, counsel, unrepresented parties, everybody was, was dealing with this by and large um, for the first time. And, and maybe that honesty and humility that it brought to the process helped change that dynamic in a positive way. So I will mm -hmm. say anecdotally that I, I don't see, um, you know, a big negative from from at least in mediations and in uh, in using these platforms, it's true you lose sometimes the the spontaneity and and discussions that you might have that are a bit different in a breakout room than you would have in a hallway, um, right. just because of how humans communicate. But uh, but by and large, yeah, I think there probably will be. We'll look back and think, well, I wonder how this could have been in person, vice you know, just just dealing with it on on a virtual platform. Yeah, yeah. And I'm wondering if um, you've received any feedback, any sort of mm. anecdotal feedback from parties appearing either before your tribunal or others. Yeah, that's also a really important question. So um, 
we haven't yet started doing systematic surveys of, of parties, but, uh, but it's in the works. And so we, until now, as you say, it's been largely anecdotal. I know some of my colleagues have also done these kind of, you know, check-ins after their hearing to say, well, what worked, what didn't work so that, um, you know, that can be improved upon the next, uh, the next time around. Um, yeah, and I think probably like a lot of other tribunals or courts in our sector that by and large, the, the feedback has been positive. I think, uh, you know, there will be those, of course, who, who miss, um, you know, and some litigators will tell you that too, they miss the, um, you know, the in-person dynamic and particularly in cross-examinations and that nothing quite replaces that. And uh, others will say they, you know, they liked being able to see everybody up close. Uh, in a way they can't do in person, particularly if you're masked and behind plexiglass. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, I think overall it's been like, we're happy, particularly in the case of mediations, we're happy that we were able to participate in a process that, you know, that we could have some control over at a time in our lives when collectively we feel like we have very little control over how things are unfolding. And I think that's quite a powerful statement, right? That you you can at least, you've got litigation ongoing, you don't wanna keep putting it on the back burner. You wanna find a way to respond and, and keep files moving so that you can provide that service to people. And uh, I think the, the feedback has largely been positive on that. Some were skeptical and it turned out better than they thought, I think. So that's mm. that's a good thing. And it's interesting, just on that, that point about control, having a little bit more mm -hmm. control, I'm wondering if the parties themselves feel that if, since, you know, they're kind of involved in the process as it's unfolding and they're be mm -hmm. being asked for their feedback and that kind of thing, if that's another positive, them sort of feeling like, hey, you know what, we can be part of this change and we're really being consulted to, uh, you know, to get our honest views on whether or not this is working. And you know, just as you're talking, I'm thinking as a party, I think that I would, I would really like that. But I don't know. Have you heard anything from parties? Well, that's, another, but... that's a great comment. And I, you know, it's sort of you were talking about like a culture shift and and how, you know, we know that tech is not some panacea, right? It's not because we just take what we used to have and flop, you know, slop it onto a virtual platform that that parties will feel that this process was easy to access and fair. And we know all about the challenges we face with delays and things being far too complicated. But yeah, I like that idea that maybe in fact, it's it's kind of been an unintended positive consequence that got pushed, you know, it started this change or was hopefully a catalyst for it that by necessarily involving parties to make sure, look, you know, what else do you need? What can we do to meet you where you are? Like, how will we, you know, necessarily having to be proactive and reach out. Uh, and I think we have an obligation to as, as tribunals to reach out to make sure everybody is, is not, you know, nobody is left behind that that may well right. have um, started shifting that and, and maybe it helps irrespective of the outcome of, of the adjudication, at least have people feel like, look, this was a fair process. So there's a ton of work that we all have to do more broadly on that. But I, I, I think that's a great observation that maybe it's it started that process of of um, of trying to shift the mentality of of being centered on our users. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Wow, such interesting times we're in in so many respects. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and oh, Jennifer, this is I can't believe how 
quickly the time has gone. <laughs> it's just been wonderful <laughs> speaking with you. Uh, yeah, you have such terrific insights and tips. And I'm just wondering if there's anything that uh, we didn't touch on that you think would be useful to pass on to listeners. Um, you know, I think maybe one point I'll make is that just as I said, for counsel and for individual adjudicators, uh, you know, it's in nobody's interest to leave leave anybody behind, right? And and I think that's an important point that institutionally we all, you know, the danger isn't sort of plowing ahead without consulting or thinking about implications for all the parties, including self self represented uh, litigants, and we don't want to take down a barrier just to put up a new one, and so. I think that's an important piece to mention, right? That those fairness and access to justice concerns are, are what underlie all of this and um, that we shouldn't assume that there's kind of a one size fits all like, oh, okay, now that we all have access to computers and Zoom that everything will work out. Um, but I, you know, we know that many litigants are marginalized and don't have the resources. Some have housing challenges, other health concerns, face disabilities, and that can be a heavy load felt by many. So it's, I think if anything, it's highlighted, we've got to keep our language simple and how we communicate with parties and and litigants and, um, and to make that access meaningful, that communicating in, in an accessible way is also a big part of it. And um, I know we all still have work to do on that front to make things easier to understand. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and let's not even talk about decision writing. Yeah, <laughs> <Just talking about. laughs> that could be a whole separate podcast. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for spending so much time with us and, and sharing your expertise and wonderful practice tips. I really, really appreciate it. Well, thanks so much uh, for having me, Shelley, and and you know, being willing to address all these important issues. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today on the XL Legal Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I'm always looking for topic and guest ideas. So if you have any suggestions for future episodes, I'd love to hear from you at xllegal.com. That's E-X-E-L-L-E-G-A-L.com.